Friends, welcome back. Of course, this is Corbett Report Radio, and I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight, what a broadcast we have lined up for you. I think we have an extra special treat lined up for you tonight, where we're going to be talking to Madison Rupert of EndTheLie.com. And for those of you who haven't checked out EndTheLie.com, this is a pretty good opportunity, and it is a news and information website that first appeared on my radar several months ago, but I'm not exactly sure when, where, or how this uh, website came to be founded, so we'll be talking to Madison about that tonight, as well as going over some of the very, very interesting and, of course, some very troubling headlines and things that are in the news all, the, all around the world on this 14th day of December 2011 back in North America, where most of you are listening to me right now. And I know a lot of you are listening because I just keep getting more and more and more email and contacts through the contact form of CorbettReport.com. And, of course, all of your emails and contacts are greatly appreciated, all of your tips and feedback and suggestions. I really do make the effort to go and read through everything that comes in, so please keep sending it in. But, of course, it is way too much for me to all to re physically reply to all of it. So if you don't get a personal response from me, please uh, don't take it as a personal offense. Obviously, it's just there's too much information coming in for me to handle all of it. But once again, I do appreciate all of those uh, contact messages that people are sending me out there. But let's get straight into it tonight with Madison Rupert, who I believe is waiting on the line. So, Madison, thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here to talk about endalie.com, which, as I say, I've, I've been seeing this uh, site pop up more and more in links and suggestions that people have uh, been making for the last several months. And it really is uh, a quite a comprehensive news source on a number of different topics. But as I say, I don't really know exactly when or how this website came together. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, the founding of endalie.com. Yeah, well, about eight months ago, uh, Hillary Clinton went before the the. I, I believe it was the House, or it might have been the Senate, but essentially she admitted that uh, the establishment media and the government's narrative is being pushed to the side by the alternative media. Um, and, you know, they they had to essentially pledge millions of dollars to counter the truth, essentially, um, with their narrative. And, I, you know, I saw that and I was inspired to... Uh, go out on my own and start up a website and start uh, pumping out as much information, truthful information, as humanly possible on, you know, every subject that I could get my hands on. And I think I've been uh, doing that uh, pretty well. But it all just got started on, on a whim one day. I saw that clip. Um, I decided, you know what, I've been, I've been reading the news for years. You know, I've been consuming this information for years. Um, why don't I get out there and, and, you know, start doing something myself, start uh, getting active. Um, and since then, I've just had so much fun writing uh, and researching as much as, as I can. Um, and like you said, it's it's been really uh, amazing for me to see how far my work has spread and, you know, how many more people are, are reading it every day. Um, it's, I think it's, it's really, uh, encouraging for every person out there who, you know, thinks they can't make an individual difference. I mean, you can, you just got to get out there and start doing it. 
Well, that that is such an inspiring message, and it meshes so well with my own experience because, of course, I'm not a professional broadcaster, and I've never considered myself to be to be that or a journalist of any kind. But I just uh, one day just saw that things were getting so crazy, and the discrepancy between what we're being told and what is actually happening in the world was so great that I had to do something to contribute to that gap. And that's where I, where, where I started, CorbettReport.com. And, of course, it's just taken off since then. So it is great to hear that that uh, Clinton speech about RT winning the info war managed to get uh, another person in the game, and that's going to happen more and more. But on that note, let's take a short break. We'll be back with Madison Rupert of Endelai.com right after this. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Of course, I'm James Corbett, coming to you all the way from the sunny climes of Western Japan tonight and coming to you live through the auspices of the Republic Broadcasting Network. But tonight we are talking to Madison Rupert, the editor of EndTheLie.com, a one-stop shop of information on all things from the military to Big Brother, the police state, justice, environment, human rights, All sorts of different subjects are covered on EndTheLie.com, a vast information resource, so it's great to have Madison here tonight. And before we start getting into some of these headlines and some of these extraordinary stories that you're working on day in and day out, perhaps we can just start by introducing yourself to to the listeners who might be hearing your voice for the first time and talking a little bit about where you're coming from and uh, really what motivated you to get into this in the first place. Yeah, well, well, like I said, you know, that the statement from Hillary Clinton made it really clear that there isn't a total hegemony when it comes to um, the the media. You know, I I previously thought that there is absolutely no way that you can get your voice heard. You know, everything is controlled by the big six corporations. It's, uh, you know, totally dominated. You have no chance of uh, getting your words out, your information out to anyone. Um, But that statement from Clinton made it clear that they're, I mean, they're, they're worried, you know, they're, they're actually concerned that people are starting to wake up on a massive scale. And, you know, there's a, a psychological principle of, there's a, a certain threshold of uh, uh, the percentage of the population that has to get tuned into a certain idea or concept before it starts spreading exponentially. And I think we've passed that, um, you know, in the in the very uh, probably within a year of uh, right now. Um, And I I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but just reading even the mainstream media, there's increasingly uh, stories which would be relegated to, uh, you know, so-called conspiracy theorists, um, which are now openly accepted as fact. I mean, the, the Fast and Furious scandal, I think, is a great example. I mean, they say. Well, yes, it was, uh, you know, brought about, it was a conspiracy literally to uh, attack the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. And now that's just something that's dropped in the mainstream media, and they're like, yeah, well, whatever, you know. Um, And the same with the the Bilderberg and trilateral takeover of Europe. You know, all this stuff is now uh, mainstream headline news, and it's, it's kind of surreal, but I think it's also a great opportunity for people like us to start really taking the world back, you know, 
Um, exactly right. And and I, I know you have a bit of a, psych, a psychology background, so I this is something that I've picked up and been talking about for years on CorporateReport.com is that the type of psyop that's going on there where they tell you that uh, that it doesn't exist, you're crazy for thinking it exists, but wouldn't it be great if it existed? And then eventually by the time they eventually admit, oh, yes, it exists, then it, the, they change it to, of course it exists. You know, what's wrong with that? So it, it's always the shifting of the goalposts, and it's always that, that first uh, impression that people get of the story is what they take away from it. So if uh, if the first thing about Fast and Furious, for example, is, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory, they weren't doing it on purpose, that's what sticks with people even after they learn the exact opposite. You're you're quite right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm studying journalism now, and you, you start learning how uh, everything in a story that seems like it's just thrown together is carefully crafted, um, extremely carefully crafted, and it, it becomes clear when you're reading... Uh, stuff in the mainstream media, especially in New York Times, all of the pertinent information is buried, uh, like usually three paragraphs from the end on the second page. And that's the area that regularly no one reads. You know, most people read the first couple paragraphs and then, uh, you know, which is referred to as the lead, which is supposed to include the most uh, pertinent information or, you know, what they want to put forth is the most pertinent information. And then sometimes they'll jump to the end to the conclusion, to uh, see how they wrap it up. But, you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff uh, that people like you and I talk about and a lot of people, uh, when they when they hear about these kinds of things, they want to just stick their fingers in their ears and, you know, yell really loudly so they can't hear you. Um, you can actually start more increasingly pointing to actual mainstream sources and saying it's right here. You know, this is no longer something that they're trying to cover up at all. And I think the the Bilderberg trilateral Goldman Sachs takeover of Greece and Italy uh, is the most perfect example. And like you said, I mean, for the longest time, it was the Bilderberg group doesn't exist. If you talk about it, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. Then it is, okay, it exists, but it's just a bunch of rich people having a really nice tea party. And now it is, yes, it exists, but it's a really good thing for these technocrats to get together and push the world in the right direction. So, I mean, like you said, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of double-think gradualism. They put forth one idea, then they quickly contradict it, and then increasingly, very gradually, they start introducing the truth, but then putting a spin on it that it's always good, you know. Um, but I think that... The most blatant aspect of the psyop, this global media psyop that that inundates us in our daily lives, is the the double think, the blatant contradictions that we see on a daily basis. Okay, we're supposed to be fearing for our lives because Al Qaeda is outside of your doorstep um, with a bomb, just waiting for you to blow up because they hate your freedom. Yet. Al-Qaeda are freedom fighters, pro-democracy freedom fighters in Libya who are liberating the country from an evil dictator. Um, and people just accept this. They're like, okay, Al-Qaeda is bad. Al-Qaeda is good. Al-Qaeda is bad again. Oh, no, wait, it's good. And it's this constant uh, contradictions and devil think that makes it so, I mean, it's totally something out of 1984. People, people don't know what to think, so the, the media tells them. You know, in this case, Al-Qaeda is bad. Now Al-Qaeda is good. Now you just have to accept it. 
and right. people or, do. Or, or uh, the yeah, Al Qaeda hates us because of our freedoms, so we have to give our freedoms to to fight Al Qaeda. Again, all of those kinds of double think. I think that's exactly the point. And and I remember when I first read 1984, I thought it was just far fetched science fiction. But unfortunately, the more I see and observe actual human behavior, the more I realize he was actually a very astute observer of human phenomenon because it's been going on for a very long time now. But as I say, you cover such a wide variety of topics on End the Lie. Um, tell us about some of the, the types of stories that you cover. Uh, well, recently I've been focusing on the National Defense Authorization Act fiscal year 2012, or S-1867, or the House version, H.R. Uh, 1540, because uh, personally I think that is one of the most pressing issues here in the United States, because uh, it represents the, the culmination of the buildup towards a total fascist police state, which began uh, actually before 9-11, but 9-11 allowed it to get kicked into high gear. I don't know if you saw recently, it came out that, you know, they essentially drafted the Patriot Act in 1995. They were just waiting for, you know, what the Project for a New American Century would call the, the new Pearl Harbor uh, to be able to push it through. And... For some reason now, they can push through the National Defense Authorization Act. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse no problem. Me. Um, without so much is a, is, a, is a question. I mean, you know, the only people speaking out against it are... Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. Something caught in my throat. Uh, Rand Paul and, uh, you know, a select few in the Senate, uh, seven total... Seven out of 100 senators uh, stood up and said, wait a second, you know, you're removing the, the most essential of our liberties, of our inalienable rights, uh, the right to a trial and the right to face your accusers and the right to uh, due process and to see a lawyer, you know, all of these things that uh, everyone thought America would never see go away. You know, th this is what's getting removed. And the crazy thing is that there was no second 9-11. There was no true impetus for this. It, it just got pushed through. And that's what really, really scared me is the fact that I didn't even know about 1867 or the precursor bill 1253. Um, I didn't know about it until someone emailed me about it. And it was a kind of... Uh, accusatory email, like, why aren't you covering this? You know, like I was covering it up and I, I emailed the person back. I'm like, well, I'm going to be honest. I had no idea that this even existed. And I started reading into it. And I mean, I was astounded. And then, you know, you start looking around online. And I mean, if you need a, an example of a media blackout, I think the, the lead up to the vote for S1867 is the most prime example because, uh, I mean, you're hard-pressed to find a single mainstream source talking about it until it was already long past. And, uh, you know, people are talking about Obama vetoing it. Uh, you know, if you're remotely f familiar with uh, the American political system, you know there's something called a veto override. And uh, all that is required is a two-thirds majority or supermajority in uh, both chambers which they have, uh, you know, in spades. I mean, in the House, it's 74% voted for 1540, and in the Senate, it was 93% voted for 1867. So even if Obama ceremonially vetoes it, 
they can just push it through regardless. And, you know, this is, the I, like I said, it's the, the culmination of this buildup, you know, through programs like uh, the Pentagon's 1033 program, where they give uh, military equipment, surplus military equipment, uh, and by surplus, you know, I mean, a, a lot of it's a year old and it's never been used. They, they're just buying up stuff constantly. You know, they don't even have a use for all of it. Um, they're, they're giving this stuff away to local and state police, just militarizing them for a de facto martial law. Unfortunately, right. And of course, the uh, the whole Obama veto threat turned out to be surprise, surprise, a complete phony anyways, as he drops the, uh, the veto threat now. And um, well, just... Terrible things, so let's uh, let's take a short break. We'll be right back with Madison Rupert right after this. My pride, give a tip of my hat. Took one more look at the sunset, no turning back. No dawn's a new phase. Our star is burning black. Shatter we raised through the haze. I'm burning that. Surrounded by parchment because it is safe. Alright, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio Friends. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com, but tonight we're talking to Madison Rupert of EndTheLie.com. Absolutely uh, fascinating stuff posted up there on the front page right now, so I hope you will go there and take a look at EndTheLie.com and we're starting to go over some of the headlines and news that is making the news in uh, this increasingly uh, crazy time, as, of course, we're just talking about the NDAA and all of the liberty-stripping provisions within it for arresting U.S. citizens on U.S. soil with U.S. Army Armed Forces personnel. Unfortunately, a sign of the times as we slip further and further into a martial law state that I think already exists to a certain extent. We just have to be uh, cognizant of that fact. But before we uh, get too too far into some of these stories, uh, Madison, you were talking during the break about an interesting story from your high school days, about an interesting teacher you had that, that helped uh, you along the path of waking up to some of this information. Perhaps you can share that with the listeners. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say my, my first uh, foray into this kind of research was actually when I was around uh, 11 or 12 years old, um, listening to Rage Against the Machine. Um, and that, that led me to investigate a lot of this stuff. But then uh, I, I lost interest for some years, you know, like uh, most uh, kids do. And I was, I was just uh, screwing around, essentially. Um, but then in my uh, honors U.S. history course in 11th grade, uh, my teacher spent half of the year going over 9-11. And we researched it in extreme detail. I mean, every single aspect Um and the, the culmination of the course was a debate, and we were assigned to either the official story or debunking the official story. And, uh, of course, the, the people trying to defend the official story had a, a much harder time than the people uh, debunking it. And actually, uh, funnily enough, not a single person arguing in favor of the official story came out on top, but I think... You know, that's that's expected at this point. Um, but that that course, I think, was incredibly instrumental in waking me up to this kind of stuff. And we watched a, a whole slew of documentaries, starting with uh, Loose Change and going through a bunch of them, uh, showing the different aspects, even the really highly controversial, uh, you know, Israeli involvement, um, which I think was really uh, brave of the teacher to even entertain that notion, uh, seeing as uh, I went to a school in Los Angeles, 
and you know you can get uh, skewered for that kind of thing. But he spent the other half of of the class going over the uh, the plight of the American Indian, and we actually took part in a traditional sweat lodge and all this kind of stuff. So <laughs> it was a, it was a pretty interesting course to say the least. But it armed me with uh, a healthy skepticism, um, and not not uh, in the sense of disbelieving everything just because it comes from an official source, but instead um, gathering as much information as humanly possible and collating it all and looking at where the inconsistencies are. And I think that's how you come to uh, at least as close as you can get to the truth um, at, at this stage. Um, but I think that, that really uh, it spurred me to not accept what I saw on television and what, what I was fed as the, the absolute truth, which is what they rely on. I mean, so often there will be blatant falsehoods, and they just say it like it's fact when it's demonstrably untrue, and that's because they expect people to think that the media is some kind of um, arbiter of truth that knows everything and it can tell you what's right, what's wrong, what you should think about, what you shouldn't. So it's really, uh, there's, there's no formal thought police needed, uh, in, in our times because it's a, uh, a social psychological, um, it's kind of a large scale group think. Certain ideas are marginalized and demonized, um, just through, uh, social interaction just through uh, people not wanting to hear about it and people, you know, saying, oh, you're weird talking about that kind of, you know, those conspiracy theories. Oh, that's depressing. Oh, I don't want to think about it. You know, oh, I have enough problems on my own, all this kind of stuff. Um, so it, it, we do, socially, we do the work for the elite. You know, we, we control the narrative far too often just by... Uh, our subconscious social interactions with each other, um, which I think is is pretty sad, and uh, that my class in in eleventh grade really really brought that to the fore because there were some people in the class who couldn't entertain the notion that the official story was wrong. You know, they said, "Well, I, you know, I had I knew people who who saw it happen, uh, therefore everything they said about it was true." And it's like, well. Okay, you know, no one's saying that that there wasn't a terrorist attack, you know, but maybe the terrorists weren't who you think they were. You know, terrorists don't have to be uh, Muslim extremists. That's you know, that's not that's not how terrorism is. Some of the biggest terrorists in the world are wearing five thousand dollars suits and uh, strolling the halls of power in Washington nowadays. Unfortunately, that's exactly the case, and I think it's important as, to point out, as you did there, that uh, so many people are conditioned just to believe what they see on, on TV or in the media because they're wearing their you know, $5,000 suits and they're saying the lies forcefully enough. But, uh, but we are breaking out of that conditioning, and we're going to continue doing more so of that as we come up on a break here. So let's take a short break. We'll be right back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. 
Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on RBN. And tonight we're talking to Madison Rupert of EndTheLie.com, a news and information source that goes over a lot of different topics on a daily basis. So I hope you are checking it out to see what is up in the news these days. And something you'll notice on the uh, the front page right now are some stories about drones and uh, cyber wars going on between Iran and the U.S. and hacking and other such very interesting issues. So, uh, Madison, perhaps we can start with uh, an article that you wrote uh, recently, just the other day. The danger posed by domestic use of drones is real, growing by the day, and can no longer be ignored. And this is about the uh, the use of a Predator B drone to get some cattle rustlers that was uh, used by, um, uh, I guess it was under the auspices of Customs and Border Protection, but actually being used by local law enforcement which, of course, should raise some posse comitatus red, red flags for people out there. But, uh, but of course, they're trying to get around that with some interesting wording and some legislation. But let's, let's get into this issue and what you think it really represents. Well, like you said, I think it, it represents a grievous breach of posse comitatus because that particular drone uh, was deployed out of an Air Force base. Um, and, you know, of course, they say, well, they're just using the Air Force base but this is Air Force technology. Uh, you know, it, technically it's owned, the, the particular drone was uh, owned by Customs and, and Border Enforcement. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we, we all know that's, that's just a joke. I mean, it's, it's on a military base, probably being uh, maintained by the military. Uh, it's military technology, um, you know, and we all know where the funding comes from. Um, but... It, the, the domestic use of drones is not, you know, people think uh, people think drones, they think Hellfire missiles raining down on weddings in Pakistan, and that's not a stage that we're at in the United States yet. And, you know, that's a big qualifying yet. Um, but right now they're being used mostly for surveillance and disturbingly frequently. Um, this is the first case... Uh, or the first publicly reported case of a Predator B being used uh, for an arrest, but they said just in June alone it had been used several times uh, for surveillance. And there was a quote from uh, someone in the, the police department which uh, said something to the effect of, well, we don't use it all the time. You know, if we're going to an apartment building, we don't use it. Like, that's supposed to be reassuring. I mean, that's kind of, you know, like, slap, obvious, slap my right? head. Yeah, exactly. If you're, you know, deploying drones to do traffic stops and, you know, you have to mention that you're not doing that, that's a little, uh, it's a little absurd. Um, but the, the technology that's on these drones and is increasingly being developed for the sensor payloads that are already on the drones, so no hardware upgrade is w- required to implement this technology. Um, it's truly disturbing. Uh, if you go to the, the Big Brother section on my website, I've written about this extensively, uh, the so-called threat assessment technology, which is a complete pseudoscience. I mean, it's just so wildly unreliable um, that it's almost laughable that they're even spending money on this kind of research. Uh, and what it does is analyzes um, physiological uh, physiological indicators of malicious intent or malintent. Um, 
And those are so unreliable and so wildly variable from person to person that the entire notion of a drone monitoring you from the air and actually actually monitoring your physiological symptoms from two miles in the air, um, it seems completely surreal. I mean, many people I talk about, uh, talk to about this, uh, they just say that's science fiction. You know, that that's never going to be really used. But unfortunately, it's already being used. It's already deployed. And um, one of the more troubling aspects of this is the widespread use of this entire concept of threat assessment, which is essentially pre-crime, like uh, the Philip K. Dick short story Minority Report, um, where you're actually criminalized before you do anything based on, you know, in, in the... The story is uh, psychics or precogs who, who uh, you know, report this kind of stuff. But in this case, it's going to be a computer algorithm that, you know, prints out something that says you're a threat. We're going to detain you indefinitely, you know, until you we decide that you're not a threat anymore. Um, but the fact that this is deployed by the Department of Homeland Security with their FAST system or future attribute screening technology that's not Orwellian, I don't know what is, um, but it's being deployed on a wide variety of platforms. So this is going to be a very pervasive technology that's that's recording data from many, many, many different sources. And one thing that uh, came to mind that could tie in with this whole system is the uh, carrier IQ technology, which is loaded up on essentially every smartphone and can't be deleted, which... Uh, records and stores and transmits uh, a lot of pertinent information and that could easily uh, start recording voice prints and that could be used in a centralized uh, biometric database which they already have um, to collate that data um, and uh, analyze it and compare it with uh, data gathered from drones or from uh, you know the fast system or uh, other platforms like that. Um, and what this represents uh, is a kind of surveillance state that you, you really can't escape. You know, they can monitor you through your computer, through a smart, uh, smart meter in your home, through a smartphone, um, and then now from the sky, from two miles up. You know, you, you won't even know it's there, but it can actually track you through a busy crowd. And one of the most uh, insane developments is uh, the, the new facial recognition technology, that uh, the new algorithms that they're developing for the sensors that are already on these drones. And what makes it um, very different from everything that we've seen previously is it doesn't just go off of a, a spatial relation of, uh, you know, eyes to ears to nose and, and you know, whatnot. Um, it actually builds a three-dimensional model of the the person's face the the subject's face um which uh, is compiled out of uh you know many many different pictures and of course they can use uh facebook and google plus and stuff like this to uh gather photos of you and compile them into a a 3d uh mapping um on top of you know surveillance photos that they that they take themselves um, but this creates a system where it no longer has to manually 
or not manually, but uh, actually compare one picture to the other and say, you know, uh, match or miss, and then it compares it to the other and does this. And this is a, a relatively slow process. It takes minutes, whereas uh, the new system, which actually compares three-dimensional data points, so it's much more precise, um, and it, it's indexed kind of like a, a search engine, um, it can be done in a fraction of a second, like one-tenth of a second. It can search uh, millions of different faces and identify who you are. And this can actually be used to identify who you are. Then it can track you, and they can identify uh, who you associate with, um, obviously where you go, what your daily habits are. But the most disturbing part about it is Previously, they'd have to get a, a re relatively um, clean image of your face uh, from straight on. You know, it, it kind of required um, some aspect of subject consent or, uh, you know, the subject would probably be aware that they're uh, getting their picture taken or, you know, they're in this kind of database. Um, but with this, it can be compiled from thousands of photos taken over, you know, any amount of time, and it actually requires no consent or no knowledge uh, from the person whatsoever, and it can track you using, um, I'm blanking on the exact amount of pixels, but I believe it's either 20 or 40 pixels uh, of actual image, which is extremely, extremely small. I mean, if you make a, open up paint on your computer and make something uh, 20 pixels by 20 pixels, you'll see how small it is. Um, and that's all that's required to actually uh, verify you with these uh, databases. Um, but the the real scary part is, I think personally, the, the whole threat assessment um, aspect of this, because it's criminalizing you before you've even done anything wrong. And it, type, it ties in very closely with the National Defense Authorization Act because while they don't need any proof at all under the NDAA to uh, detain you indefinitely, um, it would be great for them uh, PR-wise if they could, um, you know, round up people and say, here, look, you know, look at this threat assessment yourself. You know, look, it says, you know, they had a, uh, a raised timber of their voice and an increased blink rate, you know, and our algorithm says that means they wanted to blow up the president. So, you know, it's you, there's there's no thought crime. There's no uh, intention required. I mean, it's literally they can just pull it out of thin air and say you were going to do something. And right. you're like, well, well they, they well, can, no, I they can pull it out of something anyway. But uh, but you're yeah. you're yeah. absolutely right. I mean, I, the police state control grid is something that it's one of those topics that you can talk about and you can tell people various aspects of it. But when you start to go into it in detail for yourself is when you truly start to understand that this is an interlocking system. And I think to a certain extent, we're we're kind of stymied by the fact that we just don't even have a name for all of the for the way this all fits together. We can say something like police state control grid, but people don't really understand what it means until they see all the interlocking parts. And as you say, I mean, it goes from everything from this predator drone technology to all of the uh, the airport screening type of technology they want to roll out to the all of the uh, the database uh, cameras and uh, the way they're linked in together in threat fusion centers, and that leads into the legislation like the NDAA. And it's all this one big giant jigsaw puzzle that we only ever tend to look at one or two pieces at a time. 
And it's when you start to put them together that it actually adds up to the horrific nightmare that we see facing us. But I, I wanted to talk specifically about a specific aspect of the uh, the drones technology that we've been talking about here on this this broadcast for a, a couple of weeks now, and that's the uh, the suspiciously easy nature in which they can be hacked into. And by suspicious, I mean um, clearly the the back door is being left open here, and that these things are are being allowed to be hacked because I think that's the only way we can really understand such things as the recent. Um, uh, log, key logging software that found its way onto these uh, controls uh, programs in the Creech Air Force Base and, and all of these other uh, downings of drones that are going on. So perhaps we can get into some of the latest uh, stories on that with Iran and uh, in the Seychelles. Yeah, well, um, you know, I think it's it's very interesting. And, and like you said, I think it's the back door being left open because if you know anything about uh, military computer systems, you know the level of encryption that they operate uh, on is ridiculous. I mean, it would take several high-quality, I mean, top-quality computers weeks or months to crack a single um, encryption key. Um, and, of course, you know, it's multiple layers of encryption for, or, you know, one would hope for a system like a drone, um, but apparently... That is not the case, and they're easily hackable with uh, a software that costs under $50. I mean, that's the example that leaps to mind was in Iraq, insurgents were using laptops uh, with a very crude software that they could buy online um, to actually hack into the drones remotely and remove all of the uh, surveillance footage. Um, and so, you know, I think this this whole issue of these systems being hacked could very well be setting the stage for something like, uh, whoops, uh, you know, a terrorist got control of this drone and then went and, and bombed a bunch of people with it, you know, in the United States. So then we need even more control over the Internet and we need more drones to combat, you know, the possible hijack drones and all this kind of stuff. But the... The drone problem is only going to grow because uh, you brought up the Seychelles, and that's um, you know part of the new front in this drone war. These these secret drone bases, you know, in the Horn of Africa and uh, elsewhere, conducting uh, you know long term operations that they won't even uh, the CIA in most cases won't even acknowledge that the drone program exists. So, I mean, this is beyond all scrutiny. It's beyond uh, public accountability. They just have these uh, robotic war machines operating around the world, essentially um, unchecked. And, uh, you know, we've seen the, the horrors of what they can do in Yemen, killing children and killing uh, American citizens, or supposedly killing American citizens, at least. Um, and it's it's only, it, it shows no signs of abating. And the, the scary part is that, you know, it, it's a matter of concern on the global level, without a doubt. Um, but the growth at home is also, I think, something for uh, considerable concern because, you know, like I brought up the, the Pentagon's 1033 program earlier. And as more advanced drones are being purchased by the military and they're constantly paying for uh, research and development at these uh, contractors. Um, 
we're going to start seeing these be be surplus to uh, local police departments through programs like the 1033 program. Um, just handing these out, uh, you know, like toys to be used. And, you know, there, there needs to be a lot of oversight with, with how these are used in the United States and the world because it's, it's literally death at the push of a button. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty, ex- well, extremely easy really to have the operators be totally detached from what they're doing. It's like uh, playing a video game. That's that's how they advertise for these positions. I've, I'm sure you've seen the, the Air Force commercials where, you know, it'll be a kid playing a, a video game where he's flying a jet fighter around, and then it, you know, uh, shifts, and he's in this, uh, you know, little control room uh, operating a drone in Pakistan. Um, so it's it's really dehumanizing the battlefield to an absurd extent where uh, you don't even know, you know, that you're you're killing people. As far as you know, they could be video game characters on a screen and you're you're just having fun, uh, you know, flying this this plane around. Um, but unfortunately, it's real and they're they're real people that they're killing. And the fact that these systems aren't even secure is uh, a real matter for concern you know, either contrived or or if they are actually vulnerable. Absolutely right. Unfortunately right. And what goes around comes around, and this drone technology and all the military technology will come home to roost. So let's take a short break. We'll be right back to finish up with Madison Rupert right after this. Welcome back, friends. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we've been talking to Madison Rupert of EndTheLie.com, a news and information website that you can go and check out. Once again, that's EndTheLie, all one word, .com. So, uh, Madison, just in the final few minutes here, uh, just quickly, I know that you cover a lot of different topics on your website, including, of course, the latest EU Eurozone debacle and all of that. What's your take on that crisis and where it seems to be heading right now? Well, uh, initially I thought it was a, uh, a legitimate real crisis that, uh, came about coincidentally. Um, but of course, as most things, you know, once you start digging into it deeper, it becomes clear that's not the case. Just like the 2008 crisis, you know, it's, it's malicious and, uh, uh, it involves collusion and conspiracy in, in most cases. And, uh, Someone who I've been working with very closely, a, a former uh, European uh, member of Parliament, um, Richard Cottrell, uh, he he puts forth that it is actually a um, a, a large scale financial false flag to bring about a European super state, um, a kind of uh, European prosperity sphere. Um, in the model of the uh, Japanese, uh, you know, the Pacific prosperity sphere, um, which would have uh, Germany at the helm, um, and it would include a much uh, tighter political integration on top of economic integration. And as as the events unfold, um, everything that he's been talking about just is increasingly proven to be true. One thing that he mentioned was that they were going to start uh, demonetizing 
uh, these countries, starting with Italy. And lo and behold, just in a matter of weeks, um, they actually announced that they're banning or restricting uh, cash transactions over a certain amount. And uh, anyone familiar with Italian culture knows that they rely on cash uh, above all. Um, you know, they even go as far to pay bills in cash, which is something unheard of, you know, to most Americans. Um, but they're, they're really trying to demonetize these, uh, these countries to bring about a tighter integration and uh, a more controlled economy, which can then be used uh, to, uh, you know, be brought up and down and inflate and deflate at will to create wealth for the few and strip what little wealth is remaining uh, in the, the coffers of the many. Um, so I really think that it is mostly a contrived crisis, um, as with most of what we're seeing in the, uh, the economic world. You know, it, it comes about as a result of these uh, legal gambling houses that operate uh, leveraging you know, to the extent where if you tried to do that in a, in a Vegas casino, you'd end up out back, you know, uh, spitting up blood. Um, you know, when they're leveraging bets 40 to 1, like in the, in the case of MF Global, you know, it just shows you that this is, this is something's very wrong when this is uh, an accepted practice and it's uh, systemic at this point, this uh, culture of... Um, putting the, the danger off on the, the taxpayers and other people, uh, central banks, and then taking the profits home through this, uh, these gambling apparatuses and then putting off the losses when they lose on other people. Unfortunately, right. And as you indicate, of course, it's one of those things where the more you research, the more you find out that uh, this is all by design and that it's all being led into a system that's, of course, going to be uh, brought out by the banksters as the saving system, which is going to be just more control to them. So uh, a fascinating, wide-ranging conversation, lots of great news and information on uh, endthelie.com, as I've said. So, Madison Rupert, thank you so much for your time tonight, and thanks to all of you out there for listening of course, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and we'll be back tomorrow night here on Corbett Report Radio, where we'll be talking to James Evan Pilato of FoodWorldOrder.com. Until then, thanks for listening, and take care. <laughs>